When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 170th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are bringing you Whidbey Island, which is right along Puget Sound. This was suggested to us by our listener, Marjorie Sneed. Denise, you've been to Puget Sound, haven't you? Yes, I have. I love it up there. You probably got to see the orcas and everything. Yes, and I got to go to the aquarium, and I got to have coffee there, and I got to go to Pike's Place Market. Well, all that's right down in downtown Seattle. Well, Whidbey Island sounds like a beautiful location, and we're going to touch on several locations there that are all reputed to be haunted, and we also have a local legend about somebody called the Lurker. Sounds like somebody you should be calling the cops on. And on this episode, we also have the seventh installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Before we get into that, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Andy. Hey, Andy. Martha. Hi, Martha. Shannon. Hey, Shannon. Jan. Hi, Jan. And Lori, who's Kristen's mom. And hello, Lori, who's Kristen's mom. All right, Denise, I guess we might as well get on a ferry or something and head on over to Whidbey Island. I would love to get on a ferry and head to Whidbey Island, so let's go. All right. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and access to exclusive bonus content like Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information.
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. This Moment in Oddity was suggested by Rhonda Borgen. Have you ever thought to yourself when you're trying to squeeze into those skinny jeans, I'm going to get these on even if it kills me? Well, apparently back during the Victorian era, your clothes really could kill you. Arsenic could kill a person even without them having to ingest the poison. It was found that arsenic could be used to create a vibrant green dye, and thus it was used to dye clothing, particularly dresses. Imagine sweating in these dresses over and over and having the dye absorbed into your skin. And then there were hats that contained mercury. Men wore top hats made from fur, and mercury was used to make the fur strands stick together to give it that sleek look. It was extremely toxic, especially if inhaled. Socks were made with an aniline dye that inflamed feet and celluloid combs exploded. And the cotton that many women wore via their hoop skirts and costumes were incredibly flammable, and there were candles everywhere. A woman's dress could ignite and burn completely in 60 seconds. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wife died this way. While death for a wearer of these toxic clothes was rare, the danger to the makers was very real. Hatters went mad, inspiring the phrase mad as a hatter, and dressmakers or floral arrangers died from arsenic poisoning, and that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History On this day, December 15th in 1791, the Bill of Rights is ratified. The Bill of Rights is the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. These were meant to define the basic rights that all humans have upon birth and that the Constitution already supported. Some felt that the Bill of Rights was necessary to make sure everyone understood what basic rights were, but others believed that putting these rights on paper would actually limit them in some way. A promise to attach the Bill of Rights to the Constitution was needed to get some states to ratify the Constitution. These rights included the freedom of speech, press, assembly, and the free exercise of religion, the right to fair legal procedure and to bear arms, and that powers not delegated to the federal government would be reserved for the states and the people. The ratification process was lengthy, and there were fights over which amendments of the original 12 to include. Virginia was the 10th state of the 14 states at the time to approve 10 of the rights, and that was what was needed to ratify the Bill of Rights. History Goes Bump Podcast. Whidbey Island sits along Puget Sound and has a long history dating back to the 1800s. The island is the largest of all the islands, making up Island County in Washington. It is a picturesque location that stretches for 55 miles, making it the fourth longest and largest island in the contiguous United States. 
It is home to the Naval Air Station, Whidbey Island. The island also is home to Fort Casey, Evie's Landing, Admiralty Head Lighthouse, and a few legends and stories of hauntings that include The Lurker. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Whidbey Island. Whidbey Island is one of nine islands located in Island County, Washington. It is about 30 miles north of Seattle, and Whidbey Island is the northern boundary of the Puget Sound. Whidbey Island was once inhabited by Native American tribes that included the Swinomish, the Lower Skagit, Suquamish, and Snohomish. A Spanish expedition led by Manuel Guimper and Gonzalo López de Haro on the Princesa Real sighted the island in 1790, but the full exploration would come in 1792 at the hands of Captain George Vancouver. Wonder if that's where Vancouver gets its name from. I would guess that's probably <laughs> the case. Further exploration and mapping would be done later by Peter Puget, for whom Puget Sound is named, and Joseph Whidbey, for whom the island is named. Could you imagine having the name Peter Puget? <laughs> That's as bad as Peter Piper. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about that, but you're right. <laughs> Captain Vancouver decided to name the island for Whidbey after he had circumnavigated the island in June 1792. We will talk about Isaac Eby later, but he was a pioneer to the island who had great success, and other families came based on that success in the mid-1800s. In 1860, a man named W.B. Sinclair built an inn, warehouse, and postal station. And Denise, as we've come to find as we study history, you're not a town until you have... A post office. That's right. So that's when they became a town. Around 70,000 people call the island home today. So it is fairly large. And that's why it said that it is the fourth largest island in the contiguous United States. So the first location that we're going to look at here that was suggested to us by Marjorie is Fort Casey. There was a need to protect Puget Sound. And so a triangle of fire was devised, which were three forts. There was Fort Warden in Port Townsend, Fort Flagler on Marrowstone Island, and Fort Casey on Whidbey Island. Construction began on Fort Casey in 1897. It was named in honor of Brigadier General Thomas Lincoln Casey, the last U.S. Army Chief of Engineers. The fort was first activated in 1901, and it had a special feature when it came to its cannon guns. They could disappear. They were rigged on special carriages that could be raised up above the fortifications long enough to fire and then brought back down. And they were obsolete in no time. So you're thinking, wow, they've got this great innovation when it comes to cannon guns. They can pop them up and then they can bring them back down, probably to keep them from getting damaged. And then all of a sudden they were obsolete in no time at all. Sort of like our computers today. Pretty much. You go into the store and you get your new computer or phone and then you walk out and they're like, well, uh, the latest model just came out 10 minutes ago. And one of the reasons why they were obsolete is that they were no defense against planes that were flying overhead. During World War II, the guns were shipped to Europe and placed on rail cars. The fort went inactive in 1935. Fort Casey is now a state park. The interesting thing about those guns is they really didn't see any action because this triangle of fire, we didn't really have to worry about it during the World Wars. That area was really not under attack for any reason. Basically, all that's over there is Russia and they were on our side. So the way that these guns actually saw some action was because they put them over on those rail cars. And they did manage to trace down some of those guns and bring them back. And they are back at Fort Casey and they've got little nicks in them. They have battle scars but they just didn't actually happen there. But I thought it was pretty cool that they were able to track down some of those original guns and bring them back, quote-unquote, home. 
There's a lighthouse here as well named Admiralty Head Lighthouse. We know how you love your lighthouses, Denise. I know as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, we need to go there so I can get a stamp in my book. Now, this one is really a cute little lighthouse. It's Spanish in style. And what's interesting about it is it's fairly short. The keeper's house is right next door to it, and it's about two stories. And this lighthouse is barely above that two-story house, just slightly above it. Basically, the lens part is above the house, and that's it. Well, that was a smart light keeper because he said those darn kerosene (laughs) barrels with the oil to light the lamp is heavy and I'm not carrying it up tons and tons of stairs. It does make you think it must have been a lighthouse keeper who designed that because he's like, I'm not carrying it up there. I think the main thing is Admiralty Head Lighthouse is named for Admiralty Inlet, which is right there. And I think it didn't really have to be that high to be seen by the ships is the main reason why it's so short. The house has three bedrooms upstairs, and then downstairs you got a kitchen, dining room, and living room. It looked like a really nice little place. It was built originally in 1890, and then they rebuilt it again in 1903. And the original lighthouse lens was part of the house with that original design. So when they rebuilt it, the actual lighthouse part went to the outside of the house. It was designed by German architect Carl Leek, I think is how you say his name. It's L-E-I-C-K. And it was actually the last brick lighthouse that he ever did design. The army used it as a place to train for their canine dog program. I'm liking this place more and more as we talk. I'm not exactly sure what canine dogs have to do with lighthouses, but actually I think it was the whole area there and the keeper's house was a good place for them to be able to stay. So it worked out really good that way. The lighthouse was deactivated in 1922, and its lantern house was moved to the new Dungeness Lighthouse in 1927. This lighthouse is reputed to be haunted. Some people claim to have seen the figure of a woman leaning over the top railing. Now, we don't know a story that necessarily goes with that, but I do know that one of the original lighthouse keepers that served here had a sister who came and helped him with it. And when he passed away or he moved to somewhere else, she basically took it over. And so it made me wonder if maybe this woman is somebody who had served there at some time. And so she was very attached to it. And so I don't know if she passed away there or when she did pass away, she decided to come back. Not really sure what's going on there. So some of the things that people report experiencing at Fort Casey are weird noises and weird drawings on the walls. Some things like claws are heard scratching on the walls, a disembodied female voice is heard screaming, and apparitions have been seen. There are underground tunnels where people have prickly feelings on their arms. Sandy wrote of her experience, We stayed in the converted officer duplexes at Fort Casey Inn from July 24th through the 25th of 2013. Duplex number 5. My 10-year-old granddaughter was with her grandpa and I, and we had a car full of those things 10-year-old girls must have in order to remain appeased and not internally whining and everything being stupid. Nowadays, I guess it's their phone for sure. Yes, their phone, electronics. Mm -hmm. I carried in the first load through the rear entrance of the duplex while Grandpa began unloading the overstuffed trunk of the car. I walked in and began to lay my load on the kitchen table when I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. I looked up in time to see a young woman, maybe 19 to 20 years old, with hair cut short like a 20s kind of flapper style. I figured she was one of the staff, perhaps a maid doing some last-minute cleaning in our unit. I did think it was odd that she was wearing a calf-length dress cinched at the waist, especially after encountering the office staff earlier who provided me with the keys. 
These girls were dressed in the standard t-shirt and jean uniform of most college students, so it seemed strange to see someone in such different clothing. I started to say something, but she was headed out the door and then gone. When she didn't greet me and seemed to be in a hurry to leave, I got a little suspicious and followed her to the screen door, which was closed as soon as I got to it. I pushed it, and it gave a great groan. I walked out onto the porch, and those 100-year-old boards beneath my feet squilled with every step. Despite my following nearly in her footsteps, our mysterious maid had disappeared as if she'd never been there. Nothing inside seemed amiss, and I rather forgot about it while trying to get everyone settled in. It was only later that I realized that when the mystery woman fled out of the screen door, it had made no noise whatsoever, nor did the porch register its tired protest as it had with me. So that's very interesting because it seems to me like it would be impossible. Plus, you're thinking if this was a maid who was just kind of finishing up what she was doing, I am a housekeeper. I would at least acknowledge that there were people in the room with me and say, hello, how are you? Is there I'll anything right I can done. get to you? Yeah. I'm almost you. finished up mm-hmm. here. Yep. Or as you're leaving, okay, I'm all done. See you later or enjoy your visit or what have you. So it's just weird that there was no acknowledgement there. And then, of course, when you have no noise being made and you're making some noise as you're moving about. Yeah, interesting. But it does make you wonder about the clothing that she's wearing. Fort Casey Inn, what these basically were, were officers' quarters. So would have this been a wife of one of the officers who lived there in the 1920s? A woman named Ampria wrote of an experience she had at the fort. I felt the prickle of an extra presence there, but that was it. Nothing special. Not for me, anyway. But when we got back out into the sunlight, my mother, who had been in the single file line between me and my stepfather, he leading, mentioned feeling it, too. And then we all looked at her in surprise because she was wearing a necklace now that she hadn't been wearing before. A little gold cross, I think. Her hand went to her neck when she saw me frowning at her in puzzlement. Where did you get that, I asked. What, she asked, in the same minute that her fingers found the necklace and froze with a similar frown on her face. She couldn't crane her neck enough to see it properly with it on, so I unfastened it for her and held it up. This, she frowned. It's pretty, but I have no idea. I have never seen that necklace before. But I felt something... I can't recall if she put the necklace back on, but she kept touching her neck, uneasy as to how the necklace might have gotten there. That is one of the most bizarre stories I have heard. That would be pretty freaky to have something that, especially around your throat and neck area. And it's like, where did this necklace come from? Did it take it from somebody else and transfer it to her? Was it a necklace that belonged to whoever gave it to her? And why was that physical, but whoever put it on her was not physical? Yeah, that would way freak me out. So you feel this little bit of a prickly sensation and then her mom's like, wait a minute, there's something around my neck. Very peculiar. Now we have a legend that they tell there on Whidbey Island about a character called the Lurker. Whidbey Island has a naval air station. The base exchange was constructed in 1942 as a hangar for the P-3 flying boats. When the Navy no longer needed the flying boats, the building was reconstructed to house the store. Inside, walls divided the building into a snack bar, large retail store, quickie food mart, and some smaller specialty stores. It is here that an apparition known as the Lurker is seen. In the late 1940s, mechanics worked on the P3s in the hangar. One horrible day, a mechanic came to a gruesome end when he walked into a moving propeller blade. Ew. No one is sure if this was an accident or a suicide. 
either would be traumatic enough to cause a haunting to occur. Ever since this happened, people have claimed to see a man wearing coveralls in the store. He is usually seen on the catwalks in the back portion of the warehouse. No one should be on those catwalks, and when anyone approaches to find out what he's doing, he's disappeared. Employees claim to find piles of clothes on the floors when they open up in the morning. And Denise, what is really bizarre about this is it isn't like they have clothes that are up on shelves that somebody has taken off the shelves and piled up on the floor. These clothes look like they have been worn and it's just one set, as if someone is laid down on the ground and just disappeared. The underwear is inside the pants, the socks are inside shoes, and the shirt is tucked into the pants. Oh, that, yeah, if I found that, I don't think I would be doing anything alone in that store. I mean, the real kicker to me is to have underwear inside the pants, because it'd be one thing if somebody's playing a little joke and pranking you, so they put the tuck a shirt into the pants or put socks inside of shoes. But who stops to think when you're doing a prank, hey, let's grab some underwear and put it inside the pants too. Yeah, I I don't know if it's this lurker character and he lays down and he just disappears, but his clothes stay there. How does that work? I just, again, these are the things that blow my mind. How can one thing be physical, but the other's not? I know, it's very, very weird. A strange smell accompanies the apparition that is described as being similar to the smell of popcorn and employees hear disembodied footsteps walking among the clothing racks. So I have no idea what that smell of popcorn has to do with this. It's really weird. Of course, there's a food market in here. So I mean, if you're going to be smelling food, it could just be wafting from somewhere else. This is true. Because I don't know why a mechanic that got, um, well, basically obliterated in a blade would smell like popcorn. Maybe he really liked popcorn. I don't know. Could be. The hangar has a very secure keypad lock and chain system to lock the building at night. There have been several occasions when the night manager has finished locking up and then hears the padlock clicking as it unlocks and opens. The chain and lock then fall free from the doors. Security has been unable to explain how it happens, and even after they secure the door, the same thing happens. Very few are skeptical about the lurker because so many have experienced him. Our next location is the Crockett Farm Bed and Breakfast. Now, this is a charming little bed and breakfast, and it runs out of this 150-year-old home that had belonged to Colonel Walter Crockett. He was born on January 29th in 1786 in Virginia. He served during the War of 1812 and served three legislative terms for Virginia. In 1838, he decided to move west for greener pastures and ended up in Missouri. He decided the Pacific Coast would be even better, and he took his family on the dangerous journey there in 1851. He went with several other families. The family did very well with farming on 640 acres, and the colonel lived there for 18 years before he passed. His sons, Walter Jr. and Charles, moved into the house. In 1895, Walter Jr. had the barn built from old-growth timber with a mortise and tenon technique to secure the beamwork. The architectural style is unique in that wood dowels were used to secure the beams, so no steel bolts or plates were used. The historic Crockett Farmhouse features five guest rooms, each with its own bathroom, a library, and a dining room. There's also a barn on the property that is now only 11.5 acres. It is owned by Paula Spina, and she has hired historian Diana Peterson to be the proprietress. Before Paula owned the property, it was owned by Bob and Beulah Whitlow. They ran it as a bed and breakfast from 1984 until 2005. 
They even had Danny DeVito, Kathleen Turner, and Michael Douglas stay there while they were filming the movie. Which makes me think that must have been during Romancing the Stone. That would be the most logical <laughs> movie. I'm not sure where that, that movie was supposed to be located in Cartagena, I know that. So I'm not sure what they were doing over there on Whidbey Island, but... They called in help to purge the evil from the house because they felt it had a ghost in the place. And then for years before they owned the house, it had been a crash pad for hippies. Your kind of people, Denise. I like it. <laughs> Much renovation was needed, and it was during this time that the Whitlows started to feel an unpleasant presence. One time, Mr. Whitlow was trying to go upstairs to retrieve an item, and he was physically stopped by something he could not see. The colonel's son, Charles, killed himself with a pistol in an upstairs bedroom on December 12, 1893. He was having mental health issues and decided it would be better to die than be locked away in an asylum. And based on the asylums that we've looked at, I almost would agree with them that that would be better. Me too. There was blood everywhere and it soaked into the floorboards. It still can be seen underneath the carpeting. It is his spirit that roams the house in the afterlife. Mr. Whitlow was giving a tour to a group of women, and when they were leaving the room that Charles killed himself in, glass fell with a crash out of the pane of a broken window. He said it was quite terrifying for all the women. I can imagine them all squealing and running for their lives. I bet. The Whitlows also discovered a hand-sized bloodstain on the ceiling in a downstairs bedroom beneath Charles's room. Gordon Weeks, who is a former reporter in Coopville, lived for about six months in that very room, and he reported having a number of supernatural experiences. I felt like it was a benign presence, he said. I never felt like it was threatening. Most of the experiences were the basic catchy movement out of the corner of the eye. The window shades went up by themselves one time, and on another occasion, the bathroom door swung open on its own. It was after this that the Whitlows had the comb cleansed, and none of their guests ever reported having any issues. The new owner says she has no issues either, so perhaps Charles is finally at rest. This property is within the bounds of the Ebby Landing National Historic Reserve. Yeah, so we don't know that that location is still haunted because we haven't heard anything in a more current era, but it does seem like it was haunted at one time. So the Whitlow's ruined all the fun for people staying at that bed and breakfast, Denise. It's no longer haunted. <laughs> but I hear it's gorgeous. It's in a very good location. There's ferries that get people back to the mainland. So it's a nice little place that's off the beaten path to hang out at. Now, Ebby's Landing is named for Isaac Ebby, and he is very important to the history of Whidbey Island. As you heard us mention, he is basically the pioneer who brought people here. Colonel Isaac Neff Ebby was born on January 22, 1818 in Ohio. The West called to him as well, and he spent the early part of his life moving in that direction. He ended up in Missouri for a time where he studied law and he met a woman named Rebecca Davis. And you can see that Colonel Crockett took the same path moving to Missouri and they all actually knew each other there. So that's why they all ended up coming to the same area together. They were married in 1843 and had two sons named Eason and Ellison. Isaac wanted to continue to the West Coast, but he did not think that would be a good idea for his family. So in 1848, he left his family with relatives and headed off to pursue the gold rush. I love it. It's like, hi, honey. I love you. I care for you all. I don't want you to get hurt. See, I'm off to get gold. <laughs> Although when you think about the, how hard it was to get over to that area, I, I don't blame him for wanting to make sure it was it was a good path. That's true. It's not like putting somebody on a flight and just sending them over. 
Well, somehow he ended up in the Puget Sound area, and after exploring Whidbey Island, he fell in love with it. He entered a claim for 640 acres in October of 1850. The area came to be known as Ebby's Prairie. He wrote to his brother about the location, quote, I have taken my claim on it and am now living on the same in order to avail myself of the provisions of the donation law. If Rebecca, the children, and you all were here, I think I could live and die here content. Okay, so he still liked this family. And speaking of the family, Rebecca did come and brought their three sons in 1852. She was also joined by her three brothers and a family named Crockett. Which would be Colonel Crockett's family. Isaac built the family a block house. His parents and brothers soon joined the family on the island and built a home right next to his block house. The land was very fertile and Isaac did very well. When others heard about the agricultural success, they moved their families to Whidbey. Rebecca died after the birth of their third child, a daughter named Sarah, in 1853. Sarah died as well. The mainland Indian War started in 1855, and Isaac joined the fight leading a company of volunteers. He received the title of colonel for his efforts. When he returned from the fight, he became involved in territorial affairs and used his law degree as a prosecuting attorney. Isaac remarried a widow named Emily Palmer Sconce, and she joined Isaac at Whidbey with her daughter, Anna. Everything was very good at Whidbey except for one thing, and that was the relationship with the Haida tribe. There were several skirmishes, and the Haida were finally forced to move north. The tribe agreed that they would go, but within their group, they promised to take the heads of several prominent men, which they referred to as Taii, before they left the territory. Isaac would be one of the men they would choose to attack. It was a peaceful summer day in August of 1857, and the Ebby family were entertaining friends. The dogs suddenly started barking and going nuts. Isaac told everyone to stay put while he went out to investigate. He was attacked and beheaded by the Haida, who ambushed him. We should note here that there is some debate as to who really attacked Isaac Abbey. The oral history of the Kake tribe, a subgroup of the Lingent from Alaska, claims that they conducted the revenge raid in 1857. A delegation of Kake elders visited Coopville in 2014 on the anniversary of Colonel Abbey's death to offer restitution. Whichever tribe was responsible for the raid, it was brutal. The family and the guests heard a gunshot, and they escaped through the back bedroom window when the natives broke into the front of the family's cabin. They ransacked the rooms as the guests fled into the woods. Emily took the children to her father-in-law's house. Isaac's brother Winfield wrote in his diary on August 14, 1857, My brother Isaac is dead. My noble, high-minded brother is no more. Shot and beheaded at his own door. Oh, the agony I have suffered for three long days and still suffer. It seems more bitter than death. On the morning of the 12th at about 2 o'clock, we were awakened by a knocking and shouting at the door. I sprang from the bed and found R.C. Hill, H. Hill, R.H. Crosby, and Mrs. Corliss. In a few words, they told us that an attack had been made on Isaac's house by the Northern Indians, that Mrs. C. had jumped from a window, got off, ran to Mr. Engels, and aroused them and came up here. Winfield gathered a posse and they rescued the group from the woods. In the morning, Winfield went to Isaac's home to take care of his brother's body. He found his brother's headless body near the end of the porch. He was buried up the hill from his cabin at Sunnyside Cemetery next to his wife, Rebecca, and their daughter, Sarah. Emily left the island after the attack with her daughter, and Isaac's sons were raised by their grandparents. The cabin was left deserted. The cabin burned down in 1860 and was rebuilt not long after. 
1992, Phyllis Burns visited the cemetery where Isaac is buried, and she and her mother reported, As we turned to leave, I saw a movement off to our right about 100 yards away. I looked and saw a woman in a long black dress with long black hooded cape over it. She had the hood over her head. She was walking down the hill towards the cabin. Without saying anything, I touched my mother's arm and pointed to the woman. We all turned and watched as the woman slowly walked, then disappeared behind some large bushes. She never came out on the other side. We walked over to where we had seen her, feeling a bit apprehensive. There was no sign of her. We walked down to the road that runs between the cemetery and the cabin. She was nowhere to be found. There were no vehicles on the narrow, lonesome road except ours. We drove back to the mainland in silence, wondering who the woman in the black cloak was. I often wonder if the apparition was Ebby's first wife, Rebecca, and if she is somehow stuck in time. She must have loved her island paradise as much as Isaac did. Because she died young and unexpectedly, she must be searching for something to hold on to, maybe looking for Isaac to help him cross over. Other hauntings in the area feature the misty, pale blue apparition of Isaac himself. He is generally seen in the cabin, and this seems to be residual in nature, as he leaves the cabin over and over, as if heading out to meet his tragic end again and again. Other times people claim to see his headless spirit wandering the fields near the cabin. Sometimes he is cradling his head under his arm. He is at unrest, perhaps seeking his head, although his scalp with the ears attached was later returned to his brother. Legend claims a couple of things in regards to the scalp. One story says that his brother dug up his brother's coffin so that he could place the scalp in with the headless body. Another story claims that the family passed it down through generations. So, do the lurker and Isaac Abbey still wander the islands where they met their horrific ends? Do spirits wander Fort Casey in the Crockett House? Is Whidbey Island haunted? That is for you to decide. Lots of interesting stories coming out of there. It sounds like a beautiful place to visit. On our next episode, we are going to feature a location in Tempe, Arizona. This is called Casey Moore's Oyster House. Do you think we can get oysters there, Denise? Hopefully they're not of the kind that they have in Colorado. I'm sure they're not Rocky Mountain oysters. But there's no ocean really there. Yeah, maybe I'm... freshwater. There's freshwater oysters, maybe. <laughs> It'll be interesting to find out more about this location because <laughs> I thought the same thing. I'm like an oyster house in Tempe. Okay. Yeah, on the desert. So, yeah, fresh water, where's the water? <laughs> it will be interesting. This was suggested to us by our listener, Alicia Taylor. And now we have the seventh installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition, featuring I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prassel. I've got two just sort of offbeat, a little bit quirky articles here. The endings are a bit unexpected in both cases. The first one appeared in the Stark County Democrat of Canton, Ohio. It was published on June 8th of 1880, and it reads like this. A special from Seymour, Ohio, says that there is an intense excitement in Seymour over a ghost. Wednesday night, it entered the haunted house, walked upstairs, and disappeared. It was white and appeared to be the ghost of a man. Thursday night, the spook appeared headless and horrifying. It passed upstairs into a bedroom. The lady of the house locked it in a room. It tried to open the door, but it could not get out. Yesterday morning, it had vanished. <laughs> well, I guess that's one way of getting rid of a ghost. The next article appeared in the Williston Graphic of North Dakota on July 29th of 1898. The headline reads, Chided Her Mother's Spirit. 
practical young woman didn't want to be aroused at night. Kansas City has at least one young married woman who takes a very prosaic view of ghosts and so-called spirit manifestations. She was forced to spend a night alone in a St. Louis hotel, her husband being detained elsewhere by business. In the dead of the night, she was awakened out of a sound sleep by a tremendous noise in the wardrobe. It was such a sudden and unearthly uproar that the woman, sensible and practical though she was, was frightened. The noise ceased, then returned. The woman jumped up, lighted the gas, and made a thorough search both of the wardrobe and the room. There was nothing, so far as the evidence of the senses went, which could account for the racket. The woman put out the light and went back to bed. The noise was not repeated. Six months afterward, however, the woman was in San Francisco, and for the first time in her life, and solely out of curiosity, she attended a spiritualistic meeting. Almost immediately, the medium, a perfect stranger, turned to her and said, The spirit of your mother is present, madam, and she says that six months ago, naming the precise date, she tried to communicate with you by means of the wardrobe in the blank Hotel St. Louis. The woman's practical good sense did not desert her. Will you tell my mother, she said, that the next time she wants to communicate with me not to make such an awful racket in the dead of night and frighten me half out of my senses? <laughs> there you go. Boy, women of the 1890s, huh? If you're a ghost, even a headless ghost, they lock you in a room. And if it's the ghost of a woman's own mother, she tells her to hold down the racket. Maybe that's why I made my own fictional ghost hunter, Vera Vance, like a woman. She started her career in the late 1800s and continued it into the early 1900s. You can read about Vera Vance like on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter, and that's also where I post these Spectral Edition articles on every Wednesday. I've got previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition there, too. The name of that website again, The Merry Ghost Hunter. I hope you stop by. Thanks so much, Tim. That was great. We want to invite you guys to check out our website, historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank Kate for sending us her suggestion. We appreciate that. We also heard from Anthony. He said, hi, ladies. My name is Anthony, and I wanted to introduce myself and tell you what an amazing show you have. I'd actually found the show in the summer and listened to a few episodes and had my phone stolen and had to start all over again with my podcast. Now, that's a real crime right there. You know, the other thing that really stinks is when your desktop computer that you have all your iTunes on crashes, and then you have to re-upload everything onto your laptop. That would be horrible. I wonder who that's happened to. And when you listen to as many podcasts as I do, it's like, okay, what was I listening to now? Where am I at? Uh, he said he'd started listening to a show called Hillbilly Horror Stories, and the host reminded me of your show. They're a new podcast and have about 18 episodes out, and he said, I hope you get a chance to listen to them. So I actually listened to a couple of shows today, and it's a husband and wife team who, I mean, I don't, I don't want to really say that they're hillbillies, but they call themselves hillbillies. They're definitely Southern. Okay. And they talk about Southern haunts and stuff. So it was very interesting. I encourage you guys oh. to check that out. Very fun. I always think it's funny how Florida is basically we are in the South, but we're kind of our own entity unto ourselves. Yeah, it's not really what you think of when you think Southern. Like you don't think like Tennessee, the Carolinas. 
Yeah, and you're going to get every kind of accent down here from New York to Boston to the South. And then there's just us Coloradans. Then we also heard from Chloe, and she said, Hello, ladies. I'm a new listener who was sent to History Goes Bump by Mike Brown. Hey, Mike. Thank you. Who gave my husband and I an excellent ghost tour on a recent trip to Charleston. He gave us an excellent ghost tour as well. Yes, he did. And uh, when I wrote Chloe back, I said, I hope he told you about his podcast, too, because it's amazing, Pleasing Terrors. She said, I was excited to hear that your next podcast will feature Whidbey Island, which is this one. She said she had wondered if it's the Whidbey Island in Washington State. She's a Washingtonian born and raised and is looking forward to hearing it. She currently works at a museum in Washington and also interned in the museum at Eastern State Hospital, a psychiatric hospital built in 1891 that is still in operation. And interestingly, the older buildings were used as a set for the horror movie The Ward. It was also wonderful to learn that you two live in Florida. I completed my master's degree. I'm an art historian and curator at the University of Florida. During my time there, I had the opportunity to intern at Government House, and I fell in love with St. Augustine. So I told her, oh, yes, indeed, we love St. Augustine, too. Yes, we do. I also asked her, did you get to see a lot of dolphins while you're in Charleston? Because to me, that was something that was completely unexpected when we went there. And I said, we have been to all different locations around the world and to places that you specifically should see dolphins. And the most dolphins we've ever seen in our life, I would have to say, was in Charleston, other than going to like the Dolphin Research Center down in the Keys, where, where you should see a lot of them. Right, which was really cool because it was like a $10 on and off all day little pass and the dolphins were just extremely active that morning. So she said, we were also surprised by the amount of dolphins that could be seen on our boat ride to Patriots Point. And uh, we know what's at Patriots Point is the USS Yorktown, which I think rivals the USS Hornet as being one of the most haunted aircraft carriers. And they actually toured the USS Yorktown. And she didn't really feel any kind of paranormal experience there. But it was just a very overwhelming experience to think that this served during World War II. People lived and died on this ship when it was in combat. So it's just a real sense of the enormity of what you're in. Right. Sometimes it's tough when we travel with our little fur child because we kind of got off there and took pictures of it, but we couldn't go near it because they didn't allow her. Exactly. So we would have visited if we uh, could have taken the fur baby with us. Now we have some reviews from iTunes. Our first one is from Jay Berge. Love, 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 five stars. Such an enjoyable podcast. Both ladies have easygoing and cohesive personalities and voices. A great combination of history and the paranormal. Always recommend this podcast. Well, thanks so much for that. And Not That Girl too. One of my favorites, five stars. I've always loved history and I enjoy spooky stories. This is a great intersection of the two. I really enjoy listening to Denise and Diane, and I'm glad that I only recently discovered them so that I have plenty of episodes to binge listen. Love the podcast, ladies. Keep it up. Well, thanks so much. Not that girl, too. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Jennifer Taylor. Thanks. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.